You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Amen, it is the scriptures. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans, Romans chapter 3, and turn to verse 9, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, please pull out the insert in your bulletin. Uh, the scripture references will be there along with uh, notes that you can fill in. I encourage you, if you typically don't uh, follow along. I don't know some people it just helps to listen better if they don't if they're not having to fill in things. But um, I would encourage you to try to fill in all the blanks today as we talk about uh, some uh, uh, just it could be difficult doctrines if you've never heard them before. And uh, then also if you're watching online or even if you're present in the service if you and you're much more uh, uh, digitally savvy. All right, you can go and download the U version Bible app. That's the Y O U version Bible app. Go to the More tab, tap Events, and find the 11 o'clock service. And mainly the, the gist of what's in the notes will be available to you on your phone. And you can save it and use it for future reference as well. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. I want to preach to you a message that I've entitled, The Grip of Evil. The Grip of Evil. Mo Castandi writes in The Guardian, The sight of a rotting corpse is for most of us unsettling at best and repulsive and frightening at worst, the stuff of nightmares. Embalmed bodies eventually decompose, but exactly when and how long it takes depends largely on how the embalming was done, the type of casket in which the body is placed and how it is buried. Bodies are, after all, merely forms of energy trapped in lumps of matter waiting to be released in the wider universe. And then he says something really interesting. In life, our bodies expend energy keeping their countless atoms locked in highly organized configurations, staying composed. If physical death is the separation of body and soul, and spiritual death is the separation of creature from creator, then spiritually speaking, how do we stay spiritually composed once we've sinned against the giver and sustainer of life, God himself? In Romans chapter 1, Paul has indicted all humanity by writing that you and I are without excuse for refusing to give God the glory and thanksgiving that he deserves and that we have exchanged what we know about God for a law. In the last part of Romans chapter 2, Paul indicts the hypocrite, the person who has a moral standard but doesn't practice what he preaches. And in the last part of Romans chapter 2, Paul indicts the Hebrews, the Jews, 
They know God's righteous requirements because they have received God's written law, the Bible, the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. Yet they still have failed to keep those commandments and do those requirements. And in Romans chapter 3, where we're at today, Paul comes full circle. He now portrays the entire world as on trial before God in a heavenly courtroom. And he will now give his closing argument on the final charge. Let's read it in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles, that means the entire world, you and I, are all under sin. All are under sin. So what is the charge? Write this down. And it seems simple, but it's so deep. We could spend countless hours exploring this. We are all in the grip of evil. That's the charge. We are all in the grip of evil. For the first time in the book of Romans, the noun sin is used. To highlight the plight of all humanity, the noun is in the singular. Notice this. It doesn't say we're under sins. It doesn't say that all humanity, Jews and Gentiles, have committed sins. It says we are all under what? Sin, evil. In the singular. It's a noun. And that's set over against the plural or the plurality of Jews and Greeks. All the differences of race, culture, religion, which distinguish and divide human beings. We all have at least one thing in common. All of us are under sin. But notice that phrase, under sin, in the Greek construction. This is the original language of the New Testament. The phrase under with the accusative noun sin denotes subordination. This is the power of sin, the rule of sin, the sovereignty of sin, the command of sin. Let me give you a word picture. This same Greek grammatical construction is used in Luke 7 verse 8 when the centurion is explaining his faith in Jesus that Jesus has authority To give the word and sickness will leave a person. And notice how the centurion explains how authority works. Listen to this. He says, For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. Do you catch what what it means to be under sin? Is that sin is giving you commands and directions. And guess what we do? We wittingly follow them. We do it. Sin goes, go here. We go. Sin goes, come here. We come. Sin says, do this. We do it. Sin says, jump. And we say, how high? We're under sin. Sin, we're under the rule of sin. We're dominated by the influence of sin. We are imprisoned under sin's sway. Paul understands sin not just as an act, but as a force or a power that's in the world, which functions in and upon all of humanity to negative effects. And this is not the first time where sin is portrayed or personified in this way. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God actually explains to Cain after he rejected Cain's offering. He explains to Cain that he better watch out. 
And notice God's warning to Cain in Genesis 4-7. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And what Paul is saying in the definitive, there has never been anyone who has ever lived that has ruled over sin. In fact, it's just the opposite. Sin has ruled over all of us. It has dominated our lives. It has directed us away from honoring and serving the only true God. If we're going to get very technical, sin is the deprivation of the image of God. It is the decomposition of the soul. Look at this. It is the loss of power to avoid actual sin. We have no power to avoid it. It is inevitable. Listen to James Dunn. This is a very technical definition of not the act of sin, but the power of sin. Listen to what he says. Man, humanity, experiences consciously or unconsciously a power which works in him to bond him wholly to his mortality and corruptibility, to render impotent, powerless, any knowledge of God or concern to do God's will, to provoke his merely animal appetites in forgetfulness that he is a creature of God. And that power Paul calls sin. That's what all of us, you and I, are under. The reformer Martin Luther, when he was remarking upon this passage, Romans 3, 9, he says this, that the passage does not deal with men as they appear in their own eyes and before other men, but as they are before God, where they are all under sin. When God looks down on humanity, he looks on humanity and goes, they're all dominated by sin. That's a bleak picture. Let me help you envision it a little better. Jeremiah Burroughs relates the story of a tyrant, one Maxentius. He invented this torment to put men to death. He would have a dead man's carcass tied about their bodies, and so let them go wherever they wanted. But they had to carry that dead carcass about them, and the, the length of the stench put them to death. This was the tyranny, if you should, have a dead man or a woman tied about your bodies, so that when you lie in bed, when you rise, when you sit and eat, it should always be with you. And you should endure that stink and putrefaction. What a sore evil that would be. What I want you to envision is when God looks down on humanity, he sees every single one of us with the dead carcass tied to us. That's what it means to be under the domination of sin. Now, I want to talk about this from a doctrinal point of view. And this is where I, I beg you to follow along with me in your notes. That we exist in such a state in which every part of our being has been corrupted under sin. Theologians call this total depravity. Right? Total depravity. Now, the label total depravity is not defined the same by all Christian traditions. As James Montgomery Boyce points out, this is not a new teaching. It seems new to many who hear it. It is merely the purest and most basic form of the doctrine of man, the teaching on mankind, 
embraced by most Protestants and even privately by many Catholics. And it was articulated, that's probably the better way to say this, not formulated, but it was articulated by the 4th century theologian Augustine. And here's how Augustine saw you and I's, you and you and my relationship to sin throughout scriptures. All right? Throughout the scriptures. Here's how he viewed the scriptures. Before the fall, before the fall, and that's the first sin, when when we in Adam took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and rebelled against God willfully, that our relationship to sin was this. We were able to sin and able not to sin. You were free. You could choose. All right? After the fall, after the fall, this is the first sin, we are not able to not sin. Now, that doesn't mean you sin all the time, but what we're saying is that you will inevitably sin. You will inevitably sin. After Christian conversion, when you repent of sin and trust Jesus alone as your Savior and God, and He pours out the Holy Spirit into your life, this is awesome. We are able not to sin. We can refuse sin. We can deny ungodliness. And then after Christian glorification, when we pass either into heaven or Jesus comes and we're with him, that's when we are unable to sin. You can't even sin. Now here's what's interesting, and Paul uh, anticipates this. You say, if we're so dominated and influenced by sin, how can you and I be charged with going along with it, right? How have we willfully done this? I want you to see what James R. Edwards, how he addresses this in his commentary. He says, in Paul's thinking, sin carries two paradoxical and unresolved tensions. People sin willingly, but inevitably. Sin is freely chosen, otherwise it would not be sin, it wouldn't be rebellion. But there is a gravitational pull to sin, a tyranny or domination against which humanity is powerless to contend. Humanity, in other other words, is not free not to sin. Sin is thus not an occasional slip or mistake. This is important. It's not an occasional slip or mistake, but a personal collaboration with a suprapersonal power which overshadows and tragically infects the world. Here's what we're saying. Here's what Paul's saying. You and I are collaborators with evil itself. It's hard to fathom. That's what we mean when we call each other. We are sinners. We're, we have collaborated with evil. We're evil. The only way I can help people envision this toxic relationship with sin that you and I have is to think of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son, of course, he leaves home, his father forsakes all that, wants to go live his own way, right? And he goes and spends all of his resources in riotous living. But do you remember near the end of that story, in his long way away from home, that he gets so destitute that he eventually, it says, he joined himself to another man, And that man sent him out into the fields to work. And the idea is this. He eventually sold himself into slavery because he couldn't afford at that time to think he could go back. And that's what I mean by being co-collaborators. Ladies and gentlemen, we have forsaken God. We have forsaken the Father. And guess what? We have become so destitute. We have sold ourselves into sin. 
We willingly go along with the pull. It says go and we go, okay. We don't resist. We eventually will give in. A prominent Baptist, E.Y. Mullen, says all men are not equally sinful and no man is as bad as he can be. And I'll explain where that comes from in a moment. But all man's faculties and powers are affected by the cooperation of sin in his nature and all are equally incapable of saving themselves. Here's the point. What happens then if we actually see a good act in the world? Is there any good in the world? And I like Grudem's explanation of it. He says this, The inherited tendency to sin does not mean that human beings are all as bad as they could be. The constraints of civil law, the expectations of family and society, and the conviction of human conscience all provide restraining influences on our sinful tendencies. Therefore, by God's common grace, that is, by an undeserved favor that is given to all human beings, people have been able to do much good in the areas of education, the development of civilization, scientific and technological progress, the development of beauty and skill in the arts, the development of just laws, and general acts of human benevolence and kindness to others. In fact, the more Christian influence there is in a society in general, the more clearly the influence of common grace will be seen in the lives of unbelievers as well. But in spite of the ability to do good in many senses of that word, our inherited corruption, our tendency to sin, which we received from Adam, means that as far as God is concerned, we are not able to do anything that pleases him. That's what it means to be under sin. So what happens when somebody does something good? And write this theological concept down. Common grace. Common grace is the universal grace of God that enables civil justice in society in despite of human depravity. Here's what the Bible paints about human nature. Now catch this. If God did not dispense of his own initiative a grace to all mankind, if he did not give us, give us some sense of restraint, we would tear each other apart. We would. We'd kill one another. If sin had absolutely utter dominion without any common grace. So if you have, and this is what we, we, we don't say this like this cute, trite thing. If you've experienced anything good, if you've enjoyed anything about life, it is from the hands of God. I need you to catch that. Right? J.I. Packer put it this way. The phrase total depravity is commonly used to make explicit the implications of original sin. Now, original sin, we'll discuss that doctrine later in Romans, in Romans chapter 5. But here, it signifies a corruption of our moral and spiritual nature that is total, not in degree. For no one is as bad as he or she might be, but in extent. We cannot earn God's favor no matter what we do unless grace saves us. We are lost. The best way to envision what total depravity looks like, okay, because we hear the word total, we think that must mean everybody is absolutely, utterly terrible, okay? It's yes and no, (laughs) okay? 
And here's the way I think uh, Dr. Addison Leach illustrated it, and it helps us understand it. If we said that the color of sin were blue, every aspect of you and I would be some shade of blue. That's what we're saying. Is that we have totally been affected by sin. Now, some areas, some faculties, may for each individual may be more affected than others. Some may be a darker shade of blue. Some may be lighter in one area. But when God looks down on humanity and he says we're under sin, here's what we're saying. He looks and he says they're all blue. They're all blue. Sin is a more fundamental human condition than ignorance, negative social conditions, genetic corruptions, or even individual acts of willful disobedience to God's revealed will. Governments can invest fortunes in programs to persuade their citizens to behave themselves. Educational institutions can teach their students mountains of values and virtues. And I need you to understand this. And the problem of sin will still exist. You can't spend your way out of sin. You can't educate your way out of sin. One commentator put it this way. The moral degeneration and ethical dystrophy of human existence requires something far more effective than rules and regulations. It needs redemption and renewal. It's a rather morbid point of view, isn't it? That Christians believe in total depravity. Christians have often been criticized for continuously harping on sin. There he goes again, preaching about sin. In Tacitus' Annals of Rome, he was a Roman historian during the first century, he wrote this about the early Christians, that because of their condemnation of sin, they were known as haters of humankind. (laughs) Missed the point, but he understood. They condemned sin. Nietzsche bitterly complained that Christianity needs sickness. Making sick is the true hidden objective of the church's whole system of salvation procedures. One is not converted to Christianity. One must be sufficiently sick for it. Nietzsche was partly correct, but it's not the church's role to make people sick. Instead, we're simply pointing out we're all sick. That's what we're saying. You're sick and I'm sick. We all have sin sickness. The doctrine of total depravity is hard for us to accept that we are in the grip of evil. We are collaborators with evil. Most people are willing to admit that they're not perfect. It takes an extraordinary supply of arrogance for any mere human being to pretend that he or she has no flaws. But sin isn't a typo. We may be willing to admit that we wander off the true path at times. I hear that a lot. But when we become a Christian, what we are confessing as sinners is this, is that we're confessing we are and have never been on, nor have ever seen, nor have even looked for the right path. Didn't want it. Want nothing to do with it. That's what we mean by being under sin. It's difficult to come to grips with being under sin, being totally depraved, of being in the grip of evil, collaborators with evil. Our plight is not that we occasionally sin or that we get into sinful habits. The problem is that we are in and of ourselves by nature totally helpless 
when it comes to sin. Evil is not something that is limited to dictators and mass murderers. Evil lurks within our minds. It finds a highway through our veins. And if God were to get rid of evil, we'll say this, God, if God would just get rid of evil, he would have to put you down too. Is there any saving justice? We're all in the grip of evil. We're all under sin. And because we're all under sin, we're all under the wrath and judgment of God. But listen, dear flock, I'm called to preach the good news to you. My Bible contains a better phrase. It's called under grace. Under grace. My Bible has words like this, born again. And resurrection, salvation. We have a liberator. His name is Jesus and he is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Lord. See, when you understand sin as this force that you're dominated with, salvation takes on a whole other dimension. He's came and set you free from the dominion of sin. Amen. (laughs) It was carrying you around. And you couldn't do anything about it. And here's what I find just so fascinating. Imagine if this is the power of man's sin, how much more is the power of God's grace? That's what Paul wants to talk about. He's going to get to it. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. We all are dependent alike upon the grace of God for salvation. And that's a great place to be. It's a great place to be. Total depravity is the state. It is the condition, the guilt, the corruption that the gospel addresses. That's why we have to talk to you about being under the power of sin. Because ultimately the gospel is about Jesus breaking sin. Paul's great message about sin is that Christ has overcome it. Not just what you've done. The actual influence itself. He could put an end to it. Christ died for our sins. He died for all of our acts of rebellion and our fault, word, and deed. He did all that. But I also find uniquely that Paul also will say in other passage that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin. Not sins. Sin. What I need you to see is not only were your individual trespasses and transgressions nailed to the cross, God took the power of sin itself and nailed it to the cross with Jesus. You see how that works? I'm taking care of sin and I mean all of it. And he did that with Christ. God made him sin for us because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Sin no longer reigns. We're in Christ. We're under grace. Believers, you're free. And it's, it's sad to say, we talk about this, it actually makes us culpable because now you actually can choose not to sin. The Holy Spirit is inside of you at war with that sinful nature. You have a choice to live holy, to live a life in conformity to God's word. It's laid out before you. And this is only possible because Jesus has saved you. Has taken you from under the dominion of sin into the power of God's grace. Grace isn't just a past, it's a power. It teaches us to deny ungodliness. 
And so we live the rest of this life in grace. Christian, you do not have to lead a defeated life constantly at the mercy of every temptation of sin. You've been liberated. You have been. You will be triumphant. There will come a day that when we see Him, we will be just like Him. That does not mean that this age of grace that we're in is a life of ease, free from temptation. Temptations still come. But here's what I'm letting you know. You actually now, because of Jesus and the Spirit of God residing with you, you now have the power to overcome evil and no longer collaborate with it. That's the good news. That is the gospel. And so the question is, the charge, we know the charge. We're all under sin. We're all under sin. We all are. And the question now becomes this. Are you in the grip of grace? Are you in the grip of grace? I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Again, you got to hear like the... You, you really, and I can tell you this, no matter what other news you hear in your life, you'll never hear any worse news than what I just gave you. To be under sin, dominated by it, to be under the wrath and judgment of God, there's nothing worse. And at the same time, there is nothing better than to know that in spite of that, there is a God who loves you, And demonstrated his love by giving his one and only son. He bankrupted heaven to make his son sin so that you can be free and forgiven. And have eternal life in heaven with him. That is the love of God. And that's the greatest thing you can ever hear. That he loves you. What I'm asking you today is the same gospel call that the church has been preaching for ages. And it's this. Repent of sin. Change your attitude about sin. Stop saying it's a mistake, it's a slip up, it's a hang up, it's a habit, it's a typo and call it what it is. I am dominated by it. I am a sinner through and through and I cannot do anything to change myself. And when you get to that end, just like the prodigal son, when, you, when you've hit rock bottom, there you, you'll come to your senses and you'll look back. And we're looking forward in this case to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. And what we're doing, what are, we, what are we doing when we come to him? We're by faith, by faith, we're trusting that he will give grace and that he's proved that through his death for our sins and resurrection from the grave. And the question now is this, will you trust him? Will you take him, take him at his word that he will show you grace? With every head bowed and every eye closed, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to model a prayer for you that you may pray. To call out to Jesus. He's the son of God. He's not dead. He's alive. He hears our faults and whispers. And if you're ready to call out to him to confess, you're a sinner. To trust him as your savior, your God, your forgiver, your liberator. The giver of grace. And to commit your life to being under him. Then would you repeat this after me quietly in your heart. Just say, dear Jesus, I confess that I am under sin. And deserve your judgment. But. Believe you love me. You came down for me. You lived a perfect life. And you shed your blood. And died on the cross. 
for all my sins and sin. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Please forgive me. Give me grace. Change me. Grant me eternal life. With every head bowed and every eye closed, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to take your next step. What you just did was make a personal, private confession and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next thing that Jesus wants us to do is to go public through baptism. All disciples are baptized. Baptism signifies that we believe in the death of Jesus for our sins and sin. That we died to sin when he died. That's what happens when we go under the water. And then we signify when we come up out of the water that we believe that God rose from the dead to overcome sin and that we can live in the newness of life. We can have a new life not dominated by sin. And my encouragement to you is if you've never been baptized, take that next step. Just get more info. You can text BELIEVE to our texting church number. You can fill out that tear-off panel, check baptism on the back. Go to our website and click on the baptism form to fill it out. Just give us the chance to talk to you about the next step of baptism. The last thing that I want to do with the saints here, those who, who already have been baptized, I want you to hear this prayer written by the hymn writer of the, the song, Rock of Ages. And I hope this can be your prayer. It's a lengthy prayer, but let's listen to this man's call as a believer, just for the grace of God on his life. He says this, he says, We desire to approach you as our kind and merciful Father in Jesus Christ, humbly asking you to wash away our sins in his most precious blood and to give us a sufficient measure of your grace and Holy Spirit to enable us against them. You did create man, O Lord, after your own blessed image, but we have destroyed ourselves and come short of your glory. The crown has fallen from our heads, and woe unto us, for we are sinners both by nature and by practice. Justly might you swear in your wrath that we shall not enter into your rest, yet suffer us and enable us to plead in faith your gracious promise that whoever trusts in the Savior you have provided and comes unto you by him shall never perish nor fall into condemnation, but have everlasting life for his sake. And I love how he ends it. Lord, we would believe. Oh, help our unbelief. Will you pray that during this time?
Heavenly Father, where we feel our utter helplessness, that in and of ourselves, we cannot please you, cannot do anything worthy of salvation, to break the bonds of sin, and in your just amazing grace, <laughs> you've done that for us, and then, and, and then offered that as a gift. That if we'll just acknowledge the state we're in and turn to you, we can be recipients of grace. Lord, we thank you for, it's just hard to even put our minds around all the grace that you've given us. All the good things, all the things that we've enjoyed, not just spiritually, but even physically, if there's anything good, it's come from your hand. And so we thank you for that wonderful provision And then, Lord, to go and and do what you've done on the cross, we can't help but look at you and recognize that you're a God of love and mercy and grace, that you don't desire the death of the wicked, that you want repentance. And thank you for that space, that place for repentance that you've granted to us. May we not miss that opportunity, but each and every day turn more and conform more to Jesus and his word and teaching by your power and grace. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people said, amen. I want to encourage you to do just a couple of things uh, before we dismiss. Um, if you're interested, again, in being baptized or becoming a member of Mount Carmel, uh, you can fill out that tear-off panel on the back, check the appropriate box and drop it in the drop box and I'll follow up with you this week. Uh, the other thing that uh, you can do, you can text CONNECT or BELIEVE uh, to our texting church number or go to our website and fill out the appropriate form. And the biggest reason why we're asking you to do those things is so that we can kind of orchestrate a time for you to be baptized or for you to come for, for ch- a church membership vote. And we can do that and still ensure that we're following guidelines, all right? So uh, please uh, take, that, take the time to fill that out, especially visitors and those who are watching for the first time. Um, and we would love to get to know you, tell you thank you for, for being with us and partner with you in ministry. Don't forget about communion next Sunday, right? 1015. If you, if you come past 1030, we may have already done it without you, all right? So be here around 1015. You'll see the, 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 if you're coming for the 11, uh, the, the 9 o'clock service will be exiting out, okay? So I want to make sure you're aware of it. And then last but not least, RSV, your spot for church. Um, RSVP by Thursday of each week. You can just text the four letters RSVP to our texting church number. It'll send you the form, or you can go to our website and click reserve. Or since you're here, you can uh, actually fill out the back of the tariff panel. I try to let you uh, reserve for the next two weeks. So uh, it'll be August 30th and I think September 3rd. Okay, so go ahead and fill that out, and that helps us uh, to, to make sure we know whether to split the services or not. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Ask Brother Rick, will you come and lead us in one last song? Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.